0: And I have the privilege of uh, welcoming a very good friend, Dr. Brian Bourne, from Columbia Bible College. Brian and uh, Teresa, his wife Teresa, they served in Botswana as missionaries for 12 years. Over the last 13 years, Brian has been serving as professor at uh, Columbia Bible College. For the last four, he has been the uh, president and is doing a great job. Um, Brian and I have shared many different uh, seasons of life together. One of the things I love about him is his passion for Jesus and to see young men and women following Jesus with all that they are. He loves the church. He wants to see the church on mission. So it's with much joy that I welcome Brian to the pulpit and uh, would love to pray for you, Brian. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are present to speak to your people. Thank you for your word. We thank you for this text that we'll look at today, John 11. And I pray, Lord, that you would be revealing yourself to us again this morning, who you are, Jesus. I pray that your word would fall in a soft place in our hearts, that we would truly hear and that where we need to be renewed and refreshed, we would be. Where we need to be corrected, we would be corrected. Have your way among us, and I pray that our brother would speak under the anointing of your spirit, grace his lips, Lord, with your words, and may it be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Ray, and it is great to be with you all once again. It's, our, as Shar said earlier, our annual pilgrimage on Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know how many of you are football fans, but I imagine there are a few out there. But let me begin with a, uh, a greeting, and I, I do want to greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I pass on my greetings as well, or our greetings from Columbia Bible College, from our staff and our faculty and our 425 amazing students. We are excited at the college to be able to continue to offer incredible discipleship opportunities, opportunities to grow and to learn. And, uh, and we seek to have um, opportunities, these discipleship opportunities that are Christ-centered, biblically-based, Kingdom-focused and world-impacting. It's always so exciting to see what God is doing in the lives of students and, and interns who are serving all around the world. There's, uh, as Char said earlier, there are many stories we could tell, but uh, have, we'll have to have those conversations between the services. For this morning, as you heard in, uh, in Pastor Ray's prayer, that we are going to look at this text from John chapter 11. And today, uh, as an introduction, I want to immediately get a little bit personal with you all and, and challenge you to go a little bit deeper. There are few things in our lives that focus our attention more clearly than when we are caring for someone we love who is sick or dying. And I want for you, for just a moment... To think back to when someone you love was seriously ill. Perhaps it was a spouse, a child, a sibling, a parent, a friend. Just take a moment and think about that one a little bit. You can feel it, can't you? Maybe you're going through that experience even today. Their pain and suffering stirs up emotions at the deepest level. In my experience, I have learned that the most reliable information about what people really believe is revealed when someone they they love is sick or dying. We will do whatever we can to help them. Our convictions about the world we live in, our convictions about God, and even our convictions about life itself are all put to the test. When life is good, we can put on all kinds of masks, but a health crisis almost always reveals the truth about our inner beliefs. Almost 20 years ago, I was serving as a Bible teacher in Botswana, Africa. I had developed a very close relationship with a man by the name of Bishop Moses Isaiah of the Holy Heart Christian Church. He had taught me much about Setswana culture, relationships, and about faith in an African context. Even though we were incredibly different, we had become very close friends, almost like brothers. That year I had spent the three days and nights of Easter worshiping with his church. We had been singing and dancing and praying and, and, and just having an incredible time with God. Then on Easter Monday, two of the young men from his church arrived at my home with some very bad news. Bishop Isaiah lay in a hospital bed. He had been paralyzed due to a stroke. By the time I got there, he was in very bad shape. He couldn't even talk. His eyes were vacant and he just groaned. Myself and his family and church members, we were on our knees. We were praying. We were crying out to God for healing. But he died the next day. And it left me with lots of questions. Maybe some of you have been to that place before, too. Now, for the past month, you all here at Willingdon have been focusing on the identity of Jesus as revealed in the Gospel of John. And you've learned that in the first half of this book, the Apostle John records a series of amazing miracles, signs, signs that are intended to lead towards faith in the Christ Jesus. And our text for today, John chapter 11, verses 1 to 27, contains the first, uh, so first half of the story of the seventh and the final sign, the greatest sign, the raising of of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. But instead of concentrating on the miracle itself, we're going to focus on Jesus and his followers prior to this incredible sign. And as we consider this story, I want to address two specific questions. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? Who is Jesus and why does it matter? This passage challenges us to face the big questions of life and death. Why did Lazarus get sick, suffer, and die? Does God care about us? Is this life all that there is? Does life actually have meaning and significance, or do we just live a few years, get old, die? and return to the dust once again. As we walk through this story, we're going to look at the problem, the sickness of Lazarus and his death. We'll consider the purpose. Why was he sick? What was the reason? And finally, we'll consider the person of Jesus, his identity, and what his identity means to us today. How who Jesus is fundamentally affects all of life. Problem, purpose, and person. First, the problem. From the final verses of John chapter 10, we find that Jesus was ministering on the east side of the Jordan River, approximately 30 kilometers from the home of his close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was there that word reached him that Lazarus was sick. Chapter 11 begins with this simple and direct statement. Lazarus was sick. Naturally, his sisters called out for aid to the one who, who they believed could help. It was a simple message. Lord, the, love, the one you love is sick. In Luke's gospel, he tells the story of Mary and Martha hosting Jesus and his disciples. Their deep devotion and their desire to serve him is vividly portrayed in that text. In John chapter 12, in the story just following our, our text of today we are told of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with her hair in preparation for his death and burial. Clearly, there was a close relationship between Jesus and this family. In the urgent message that they sent to their Lord, we see a confidence and a faith in him as both their healer and their friend. They simply informed him of the situation. No suggestion was made as to the course of action that he should take. They knew that Jesus would do what was best. But what Jesus actually did comes as a complete surprise. For we might have expected him to heal Lazarus from a distance, as he had done in other circumstances, Or at the very least, we would have assumed that he would immediately go to Bethany. After all, the text has repeatedly made it clear that Jesus loved this family. Listen to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's a remarkable statement in the Gospels. We know that Jesus loved all people. But you find very few of these direct declarations of Jesus' love for specific individuals. He clearly cared about them. But instead of going to Bethany, he deliberately stayed right where he was for two more days. What's going on? Have you ever been there? In pain? Struggling to get through life? Wondering if you can go on, you cry out to God, but it seems that he doesn't show up. You desperately want to see someone you love, experience healing, joy, hope. This was the experience of Mary and Martha. If you read verses 21 and 32, you can sense their confusion. On meeting Jesus after their brother's death, they both express the same identical disappointment. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And left unsaid are the words, I thought you loved us, I thought you cared. This is how you treat your friends, then what's the point? There's a problem here, but it's not with Jesus. It's that we can't see the bigger purpose, the reason for Jesus' delay. So let's continue. Let's go back to verses 4 to 16, and I will read the text. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? Jesus answered, are there... Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of Lazarus' death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go, that we may die with him. Now, the disciples wouldn't have thought twice about Jesus' decision to stay right where he was. It was really somewhat of a, we could almost say, kind of a no-brainer. Bethany was only three kilometers from Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders had already attempted to kill Jesus there a couple of times already. Why walk into a death trap? But as we all know, concern for safety was not the issue with Jesus at all. The reason for Jesus' delay was due to the divine purpose for Lazarus' death. Listen again to verse 4. But when Jesus heard of Lazarus' sickness, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. One could easily assume that by healing Lazarus, the crowds would be awestruck by Jesus' power. But but that's not all that's going on here. A careful reading of John's gospel reveals the close link between Jesus' death and his glorification. Bible commentator Raymond Brown has put it this way. This miracle will glorify Jesus, not so much in the sense that people will admire it and praise him, but in the sense that it will lead to his death, which is a stage in his glorification. This is clear from John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit, many seeds. Lazarus. His sickness and his death were all part of a much greater plan that was leading to Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. His glorification as the Son of God. The focal point of this story is not the resurrection of Lazarus. We need to read this story in the context of the entire gospel. This is all leading towards this this amazing climax in Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, His recogni- the recognition that he is Lord of all. Of course, we might expect, as we might expect, the disciples didn't understand Jesus' words at the time. And that's immediately obvious based on three observations from the text. First, when Jesus announced that they were heading back to Judea, they balked at the idea. To them, that was a suicide plan. Instead of listening to God, the disciples were taking their cues from their circumstances. They were not in tune with the voice of God. Whereas, as we see from the rest of the Gospel of John, Jesus was always listening to his Father. Second, it's clear that they did not understand Jesus' words in verses 9 and 10 about walking in the light of day. Jesus was using a metaphor. In the natural realm, one is able to walk without stumbling when the light of day is present. We all know this. And the point is that they need not worry about what will happen to them, for they have the light of the world with them. They should stick close to Jesus, even when he seems to lead them into danger. For no matter what happens, God's purposes will be fulfilled. Even as Lazarus' illness and death will work for the glory of God. And finally, thirdly, we see that their inability to fathom what was going on is highlighted by their misunderstanding about Jesus' words concerning Lazarus' condition. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Jesus was clearly employing a euphemism to tell them that Lazarus had died. But the disciples misunderstood This seems almost a bit amazing. Who could think that Jesus was concerned about Lazarus just being asleep? What were they thinking? Clearly they were afraid and confused. Their lack of comprehension forced Jesus to speak bluntly. Lazarus is dead. And it also provided him with an opportunity to provide greater perspective on Lazarus' sickness and death. For I am glad... That For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus had no doubt that he could have cured Lazarus had he been there. But something even more important for the faith of the disciples was about to take place. Jesus wanted to take them to a new understanding of who he is and what that means. For that to happen, they'd have to walk into a dangerous place. Thomas knew the risk. Let's go and die with him, he said. Thomas often gets a bad rap, doubting Thomas. But I think we should maybe change his name to Loyal Thomas or Courageous Thomas. He didn't know what was coming, but he was willing to walk into it with Jesus. Sometimes we face similar challenges in our own lives. For our faith to grow, we have to experience trials that we'd rather avoid. The disciples already had a degree of faith, but Jesus wanted them to discover something new about his full identity. There was a purpose. Each new revelation took the disciples nearer to the truth of who Jesus really is. They were on the road to the cross, the ultimate revelation of God's light, his love, and his life. As God reveals more of himself and his ways to us, we must have a faith that is ready to be stretched and deepened. Faith enables us to rest in God, but God also keeps us on the move as we continue to grow closer to him. So Jesus and his disciples set off for Bethany, and upon their arrival, they learn that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. There is no doubt That he is truly dead. A crowd had gathered to comfort Mary and Martha. And when Martha hears that Jesus has arrived. She quickly goes out to meet him. We've already discussed her initial declaration. Lord if you had been here. My brother wouldn't have died. But her next words are also extremely significant. But I know that even now. God will give you whatever you ask. What did she mean by that statement? Well, for one thing, we can tell that she had a somewhat defective view on who Jesus really was. The fact that she says, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, suggests a distance between Jesus and God. She considers Jesus an intermediary who is heard by God, but she does not understand that Jesus is God is the God of life itself. But I don't think we should be too hard on Martha. Even though she must have been very confused by what she would have sensed as a lack of love and perhaps action on Jesus' part, she still expressed considerable faith. Her initial assertion indicates that she fully believed Jesus could have healed Lazarus. And furthermore, Her second statement reveals that she believed that God would still answer Jesus' requests. Was she convinced that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead? Probably not, as we can see from later on in the story, when Jesus ordered that the, the stone be rolled away from the tomb, and she objected to that idea. But let's recognize her level of commitment to the person of Jesus, even in the face of tragedy. Her trust in God's love was not shaken by what seemed like indifference or disregard. How would we have responded had we, if we were in the shoes of Martha? The depth of her faith is seen in those words, even now. Martha is a remarkable example of stellar faith, which should encourage us all when we face situations in which God seems to be absent or uncaring. The hard parts of life are occasions for learning about God and drawing even closer to him. Her faith is further demonstrated by her agreement with Jesus' statement, Your brother will rise again. She believed in the future resurrection. God will raise the dead. Her belief was not wrong. In fact, it would soon be confirmed by what took place. But it was still partial. Jesus was speaking of something more profound. The very foundation upon which the future, the future resurrection itself rests. He himself is the great I am. The Lord of life. And it's at this point that we get to the crux of the matter. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die." And everyone, whoever lives and believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this? I wonder if we can ever truly comprehend the incredible importance and power of these words prior to our own death. During our years in Botswana, I became overly familiar with death. It was the 1990s and the HIV AIDS pandemic was sweeping through the country and death was a daily occurrence. When you greeted someone, you would quickly rush through the pleasantries and get to what really mattered. Who was sick? Who had just died? Whose funeral were you going to attend on the coming weekend? This was a normal part of life. One evening after a Bible class, one of my students asked if I would visit her 13-year-old sister, who was extremely ill. As long as I live, I will never forget that encounter. This family lived in the poorest section of of our city, and their home was small and dingy. The frail teenager lay on a very thin mat in the middle of the floor. She was just skin and bones with flies gathered around her face. I kneeled down beside her and gently greeted her. She was weak, near death, and I could hardly hear her voice. Her sister introduced me as her Bible teacher, a pastor. This little girl, she looked up, to, looked up at me. She raised herself a little bit up on her elbows. And with tears in her eyes, she quietly said, God must really hate me. Born into poverty, infected with horrible disease by an older man who had taken advantage of her. And now dying like a dog on a dirt floor. Her life seemed meaningless. And at that moment, I have never been more sure and more excited about the truth of Jesus' proclamation. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Through my own tears, I shared with her the gospel. The reality that God loves us so much that he became one with us in Jesus. I told her of this Jesus who has a power over death, over sickness and storms. A God who has all that power and yet is willing to die on a cross So that we might be forgiven. And come into right relationship with God the Father. I told her that her life mattered. That she mattered to God. And the spirit of Jesus was present that day. And she opened up her heart to God. And and accepted that incredible love that God has for her. And this promise of resurrection. And the next day she died. And she met Jesus face to face. This declaration of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, is earth-shattering. Our culture vainly struggles against death, but you can't cheat death. We can fight it and try and hold it at bay, but we will all die. We put tremendous effort into denying death. Why? Because our culture has no answers. People know that if death means the end, that if there's just nothing more, then truly life is devoid of meaning. And if that's the case, well then no wonder that people grasp after materialism, escape into addiction, or anxiously crumble under the sheer pointlessness of it all. If life ends with death, then it's useless. But if life starts and ends with Jesus, then it's a completely different matter death isn't the end. There is a purpose. There is a reason. Jesus. His declaration refers to his power over both physical and spiritual death. Jesus is the resurrection because whoever believes in him, though they may go to the grave, they will experience eternal life. As it says in John chapter 17, verse three, eternal life is knowing God, living in right relationship with him forever. But it's not just some mystical or spiritual experience. This is a life that conquers physical death. The resurrection is real and it is bodily. The story of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus is intended to make that clear. Jesus as the son of God has power over death. Amen? But this isn't just about life after death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Read John's gospel from start to finish. We keep running into these powerful words. In him was life, eternal life, living water. Come to me to have life, the bread of life, abundant life. George Beasley Murray puts it so well. Since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, Christian existence in Christ is life before death. It is not primarily about something awaited, but the principle of life in the present. And since it is life in union with the Lord who conquered death, death cannot touch it. Death can't touch it. I love that. Somebody should make a rap out of it or something. Eternal life is not just about how long we live. It's about how we live. Eternal life in the here and now is is life with a commitment to a person, Jesus, and a commitment to a purpose, a love, and a mission. It is a life filled with significance. What makes this life meaningful and rich now is our relationship with the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our relationships with one another. Life in Christ changes everything. Church historian Rodney Stark has noted that the reason that the early church grew so quickly was because of their belief in the resurrection. In the face of deadly epidemics, followers of the pagan religions fled for their lives. They left the sick behind. But the Christians stayed and they cared for the sick. They weren't afraid of death because they knew the Lord of life. They had a new purpose for living, to see their neighbors to come to a saving relationship with Christ. Of course, some of those early Christians got sick and died. But many of those who were outside of the church, who didn't know Jesus prior to this time, they recovered because of the care they received from these faithful believers. And when they recovered, they turned their lives over to Jesus. They had experienced the life transforming power of the resurrection in Christ. And the church grew and became a powerful force in the world because of this belief and practice. So what's our response today? Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? In the face of suffering and death, we can respond with fear, with frustration, or with faith. The disciples didn't want to go to Bethany. They saw death looming on the, on the horizon and they were afraid. Martha had some faith, but she also expressed her frustration, her disappointment with Jesus. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus gave Martha another chance. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? She didn't understand it all yet. She was still on a journey, but she has given us one of the most powerful confessions of faith that we find in the entire New Testament. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Amen. Martha understood that our hope is not just in the resurrection. Our hope is in Christ Jesus, the Lord of the resurrection, the son of God, the great I am, the Messiah, the one who came to set his people free. We have hope as we have faith in Christ. And the reason that we have celebrated this communion today is because Jesus lives. He is the resurrection and the life. And I want to encourage anyone here this morning If you have not yet experienced life in Christ, life in the present and life for the future, eternal life, today is the day for you. There's going to be an opportunity for you after the service, if anyone wants to come forward for prayer, to have a conversation with one of the pastors or leaders from here in the church, we want you to experience the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. As a closing prayer together, I'm going to invite you all to stand, and we're going to do a responsive reading. This responsive reading was prepared by one of our students at Columbia Bible College. Her name is Elise Spletzer, and it focuses on Jesus, our hope. I am going to say the first few lines, Jesus is our hope, Jesus is our purpose, and I invite you then to respond Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our purpose. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our purpose. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our purpose. Jesus is our hope and our purpose. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our purpose. Lord God, we thank you so much for your incredible gift in Jesus Christ. We have life in the present and forever because of this this amazing gift. Your willingness to become one with us, to die a horrible death so that we might be forgiven and set free. And you have demonstrated your power over our greatest enemy, death. And we bow before you, we worship you and recognize you as our resurrection and life. May you be honored and glorified through all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.